Oh Lord, as we come to your word, we remember that your word is sufficient, that it is inspired, that it is inerrant. We know that it accomplishes your work and that you have promised that your word never returns void to you. That your purposes are accomplished by the preaching of your word. And you have given us your word in order to teach us, to instruct us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to conform us to Christ's likeness. And so to that end, Lord, do your work in us now as we come to your word. Show us Christ. May we hear his voice. And may we grow in his likeness. All for the glory of Christ, our good shepherd. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Psalms 42 and 43. Uh, We'll be continuing our study in the Psalms this month, looking at Psalms 42 and 43. Uh, Now, you might be thinking, wow, it it takes Pastor, uh, you know, a whole sermon to preach through one verse in John, and here we are covering two whole Psalms. Actually, we're only looking at one psalm today, but we're going to get to that here in just a minute. You'll see as we go through this that these are actually uh, one unit. These are one psalm put together. Uh, Over the course of the past two years, uh, we've seen something that we've, in our country, in our culture, we've never seen before, and that is just wave after wave of mandates and lockdowns, uh, not to mention an absolute onslaught of propaganda by, uh, by the news, by the media, uh, by all kinds of sources. But I don't want to get into the politics of this. What I want to discuss is the consequence of these lockdowns and mandates Uh, One of the things that I've done over the past two years is every day I I have a website that I go to where I see, I I look at our state, I look up our state and I see how many new COVID cases there are and how many deaths there were for the day, not only in our state, but also in our country, just to kind of gauge how things are going. But I think we all know by now that those numbers are on one hand, they're, they're deceptive because they have been inflated. And when I say that, I mean that, you know, if somebody died uh, in a car accident, for example, and they tested their blood and they had COVID, they were counted as a COVID case and a COVID death. Uh, that's totally unscientific. No, no question about that. But on the other hand, uh, while that served to inflate the numbers, the damage that was actually done by the mandates and the lockdowns is understated in every single uh, chart that you look at because there are so many numbers and so many statistics that aren't even factored into the equation. For example, the number of suicides and deaths which came by drug overdose, which were caused by the mandates and the lockdowns. If you look at, the, at the, the statistics for that, if you look at charts for that, there's an immediate spike in April of 2020 that didn't go back down to normal. It's, it's still normal that all these people are, more people than ever, are committing suicide or becoming addicted, addicted to drugs or overdosing on drugs. And on top of that, the rate of reported depression has reportedly tripled. That's really significant. 
The rate of depression in our country has tripled in the last two years, according to some new studies. Now, let me be clear about something. As somebody who has struggled with depression myself for years, and that is that people who have depression don't want to report that we have depression. We don't like to talk about it. There's a sense of shame and even guilt about it. It's just the way we're wired. Uh, so we, we try our best. People who have depression try our best to, to hide it and just pretend it isn't there. And so it's a very silent battle for many. Now, prior to COVID... It was estimated that 20%, that one out of every five people struggled with regular depression. So if the rate has tripled in the past two years, that means that now three in five people, 60% of the population, have reported that they are struggling with depression, which means that the real number is actually somewhere between 70 and 80% of our population, since depressed people tend to shy away from talking about it or reporting it. I couldn't help but ask myself over the past two years, more times than I can count, where is God when I am depressed? Does Scripture instruct us in how to deal with something that seems so silly but it's so real as depression? And the answer to that question is yes. Absolutely yes. God does care when we're depressed. And in fact, He has given us psalms like the one that we'll be looking at today, which again looks like two psalms, but I can assure you it is only one. Uh, We're going to get to that. But before we go any further, let me begin by saying that I recognize that there are actually two types of depression. There is spiritual depression, uh, a secular psychologist will call that situational depression, and then there is depression that is rooted in our biology. Uh, it's not unheard of, for example, for a woman to experience postpartum depression after she gives birth to a baby uh, because her hormones get out of balance uh, and it takes some time for those to balance again. Uh, There are people who experience severe head trauma, uh, which results in biological depression as well. One of the leading causes of depression is a vitamin D deficiency, which in our area, when we're getting nine months of rain out of the year, means that a lot of people here are depressed. The scriptures absolutely do not forbid the use of medication in those cases. But the Scriptures also, they do instruct us to not put our ultimate hope in medication. But with that said, even people who have a depression that is rooted in their biology, whether it's hormones or whatever, they will also experience depression that is spiritual. And thus, regardless of the type of depression that a person has, the psalm that we come to today speaks to us. And this is one of the benefits and blessings of studying the psalms. They tell us how to think when our minds are jumbled up, when our minds are confused. They tell us how to respond when our feelings and our emotions are down, regardless of the type of depression that we're talking about. In that sense, the Psalms are, in a sense, 
Kind of like divine psychotherapy. They show us how to think. They teach us how to act and how to feel and how to deal with wayward thoughts and wayward emotions and feelings. That's important for us because even as Christians, our feelings so often and so easily mislead us. Now let's briefly consider why Psalms 42 and 43 are actually only one psalm. Everybody have your Bible open to Psalm 42? Okay, if you have your Bibles open, what I want you to first see is that there is a title for Psalm 42, but there isn't one for Psalm 43. Psalm 42, you see at the top, it says, A Maskell of the Sons of Korah. Everybody see that? That's the title of this psalm. But Psalm 43, now look down at Psalm 43, there is no author, there is no title given. Still not completely convinced? That's okay. I wouldn't be either. Uh, but what really makes the case is the unity of the two psalms. Now, if you've got your Bibles open to Psalm 42, look at verse 5 with me for just a second. The third line, this, this is important. This is the important part of the psalm. The third line says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. You see that? Okay, now look down at verse 11. Third line. There it is again. Same thing. Hope in God for I shall yet praise Him. See it? Okay, now, that's kind of the refrain. It's kind of like a chorus, something that they sing as kind of a refrain. Okay, now look at Psalm 43. Look at verse 5. Third line. There it is again. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him. It's the same thing over and over, tying these two psalms together. Without question, this is one psalm. It's the same theme in both psalms, and it is a particular uh, type of psalm. Both 42 and 43 are are the same type and same pattern of psalm. It's called a lament. The pattern that we see throughout this this, uh, psalm is you'll see a lament followed by hope, followed by lament, followed by hope, followed by lament, followed by hope all the way through Psalms 42 and 43, which really brings them together. So three times total. Now, why was this broken up into two Psalms? I have no idea. There are a lot of theories out there, but we don't know exactly why it happened. At some point they were one, uh, and they were broken up into two, and we can clearly see that Psalm 43 is actually the ending of Psalm 42. But the point of this psalm If you haven't figured it out by now, by that refrain, the point of this psalm is that the cure for depression, despair, or disappointment with the things of this world is to place our hope more fully upon God and His promises. To take our eyes off of ourselves, off of our problems, off of our whatever we're feeling, and to believe in and hope in God. So let's look at the first section. The first section is verses 1 to 5 of Psalm 42. It says this For the choir director, a mascal of the sons of Korah, which reminds us that this was a song. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. 
Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. Now this is the first time that we have seen a psalm written by the sons of Korah, uh, at least in which they are named specifically as the authors of a psalm. Uh, Maybe that's because uh, most of uh, the psalms from book one uh, of psalms, which is uh, Psalms uh, 1 to 41, those were mostly written by David. Uh, There were a few that were unnamed, so it's possible that those were uh, written by the sons of Korah. We just don't know. Uh, But David didn't write many of the Psalms here in the second book, however. Uh, So now that we're starting the second book of the Psalms, it's perhaps fitting to introduce us to some of the other authors of some Psalms. Uh, And in this case, it's the sons of Korah. Now, it'll help us to understand who the sons of Korah were and to understand uh, who they were. We have to go actually all the way back to the Pentateuch, to the the first five books of the Bible. There we learn that the Levites were assigned the duties of the priesthood, right? We all know that. The Levites were given the duty of the priesthood. But further, among the Levites, there were three groups of Levites, the sons of Gershon, the sons of Merari, and the sons of Kohath. Kohath had a grandson named Korah, And Korah was the man from whom the authors of this psalm descended. The Kohathites, uh, which included the Korahites, uh, were given the responsibility of singing praises to God. We actually see this in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 19, which says, The Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and of the sons of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice singing in the temple, leading God's people in song was their specific service uh, unto the Lord. But if you want to know uh, more about them, uh, which I think is important, you need to know Korah's story and what happened to Korah. Uh, You know that God judged them very severely, Korah and his household and uh, many of the Korahites, uh, because they disobeyed God. Uh, and the earth opened up and swallowed them alive, and they died. Uh, their mention in Second Chronicles, however, which comes after that happened, indicates that not all of them were killed. The fathers were, uh, but some, probably, or, or at least perhaps, their youngest children survived. Uh, one example of one of the uh, descendants of Korah is Samuel, the prophet Samuel. Uh, and so were the authors of this psalm. Uh, Perhaps this just judgment by God against their fathers is actually what led to them writing this psalm. But the psalm begins very poetically, and you'll recognize it from the old song by Maranatha that we sing here from time to time. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Now the Hebrew word which gets translated pants uh, basically means to have an extreme longing for. Uh, like every other animal uh, on the face of the earth, deer need water in order to survive. What happens to any animal if they are not able to get any water? They, they die, right? Without water, any animal is eventually going to dehydrate 
and die. Now, so with that in mind, there's an obvious difference between a deer who has a ready supply of water that he's nearby, and then a deer who finds himself in a place, maybe he was chased off by a predator, and so he no longer has access to water. But he needs to find some very quickly. The deer who has a, an abundant supply of water, when they run, they look like they have springs in their feet, if you've ever seen a deer run. But a deer who's getting dehydrated looks more like they have weights in their feet once dehydration sets in. Uh, and actually, if you think about that, that's a picture of depression. That's how depression feels. It feels like it's impossible to move. Everything feels so much more burdensome, like we don't have the energy to do what we would normally do. We can't act like we would normally act. That's exactly how depression feels, isn't it? Some of you know from personal experience. I know from personal experience. And that's how the psalmists here are feeling. But it's not that they long for water. It's that they long for God. And so they find themselves in a position where they feel, that's the key word there, they feel like they are far away from God. In fact, even a quick glance at the words here reveals that they've been cut off from something that was central to Jewish life. They have been exiled, and so they are no longer able to go and worship God in His holy temple, which was central to Jewish life. And so the psalmists are thinking about how they were, once upon a time, back in the good old days, they were able to, to worship God freely and how they would pour their soul out to God as they led the people in singing. But now they find themselves unable to go to the temple and their enemies have noticed the way that it has started to negatively affect their mood. But instead of trying to encourage them, instead of trying to uplift them, they pour salt in the open wounds of the sons of Korah by taunting them, saying, Where is your God? And these voices that are questioning God's existence or His faithfulness are just echoing in their ears. It's stuck with them. They're starting to wonder too, Where is my God? They're, they're right. Where is my God? And maybe these, so maybe these taunting tactics are starting to work, starting to wear them down, starting to make them feel melancholy, at least. Maybe they're starting to ask the same question that their captors are asking. Maybe they're starting to wonder if God cares about them or if God has forgotten about them. Maybe they're starting to doubt that God cares. And all of this is just crushing them inside. Verse 3 says, My tears have been my food day and night. The picture here is of a man who is so downcast, he can't eat. All he can do is weep. All he can do is cry. And as he cries all day long, he's just tasting his tears. That's the only thing he's tasting all day long is the taste of his own tears running down the sides of his face. He's depressed. He's depressed. One of the implications here is that the picture of this man who is, uh, who's taken captive, who's far, feeling far away from God, is that he's alone, which is a very dangerous thing when you're depressed. It's not good to be alone. It's 
doubly or triply not good to be alone when you are depressed. Now, you might not feel like being around people when you're depressed because that takes energy. And when you're depressed, you just don't have the level of energy that you normally have, right? But it's also not good for you to isolate yourself and have nobody to wipe the tears from your eyes. So when you're feeling depressed, and maybe you know what that's like, Maybe someday you will know what it's like if you don't now. The first piece of counsel I have for you is to not remain too long in isolation. You need to be around people. Yes, it will take energy, but you need to do it. Specifically, not just being around people, you need to be around God's people. The thing is, I know you don't feel like it, I I know, but this is where you must learn to override. You must learn to veto whatever it is you are feeling. You need to take control of what you're feeling. The first step is to refuse to remain in isolation for too long. You need to be around God's people. But you should know, especially if you suffer from depression regularly, that there are certain types of people that you really would be wise to actually avoid surrounding yourself with. The first type of person that I would say you need to avoid surrounding yourself with is other people who are depressed. Maybe people who are perpetually melancholy. You know, some people just have that kind of disposition, and that, that's okay. But you need somebody who's going to uplift you. What happens when people gather with other depressed people is that they just sit there and they drink one another's tears, so to speak. That is not what you need. That is certainly not the cure for a downcast or depressed spirit. The other type of person I would counsel you to avoid is a person whose theology belongs in the gutter. Somebody who has terrible theology. Think of of Job's friends, for example, who were sure when Job was suffering, because their theology was, was gutter theology, they were sure that his suffering was a result of some sin that he had committed against God, and if he would only cleanse himself, that his suffering would end. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. The truth is, that was as wrong as they could possibly be. According to their theology, Job, if your faith was only where it should be, you wouldn't be suffering. You know what that is? That's prosperity theology. That is prosperity theology. That is false theology. That is not biblical theology. Job proves it. And the conclusion that people like this lead others to is that either they don't believe enough, your faith isn't strong enough, your faith is insufficient, or, this is even worse, God's grace isn't sufficient. So which is it? Are you suffering because your faith isn't sufficient or because God's grace isn't sufficient? Let me just say that those are both satanic lies from the pits of hell. They are both wrong. Now, if you are struggling with thoughts like these, and I've known Christians who do, If you're struggling with thoughts like these, let me say this to you, it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. What I'm saying is that if you are a Christian, you shouldn't be allowing that type of thinking to remain unchallenged in your mind. 
You see the difference between those two? Between saying, oh, if, you, if you think like that, you're not a Christian, and saying, because you're a Christian, you shouldn't think like that. So I'm not saying that you're not a Christian, but to think that if your faith were just strong enough, you wouldn't suffer, or to think that God's grace must not be sufficient if you do suffer, those thoughts need to be immediately challenged. Rebuke thyself, saint. Rebuke those thoughts. Go to war with those types of thoughts. Don't let them stand there uncontested in your mind. Sometimes it's fake Christians who believe the uh, the prosperity gospel that have bad theology, but sometimes legitimate Christians have bad theology. I mean, I can't even tell you how many well-meaning brothers and sisters have tried to convince me that Christians never have a reason to be depressed, as if we're supposed to just be constantly happy, regardless of what's happening, regardless of you know, whatever circumstances we're facing. Listen, we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. A world that is corrupted through and through by sin and by things that sin has influenced and destroyed. There are a lot of things to be depressed about in this world. I imagine that some would say that I'm not being a very good Christian by telling you that if you're depressed, there are certain types of people you shouldn't surround yourself with, but you can't give room to those voices in your head. You can't even give room to your own voice in your head if it isn't uplifting you biblically. If it isn't pointing you to biblical truth. And that's part of the problem. I mean, we we all too often not only have external voices to contend with, but we have internal voices like the psalmist here does. It's starting to echo in his ears, in his mind. Where is your God? That's part of the problem. We, we have so many voices to contend with. What are we supposed to do with them? I mean, we, we can't just ignore those voices. They're there. If your spirit is crying out in despair or disappointment or depression, it's only going to get more loud. It's only going to get more frequent. So what do you do? How do you silence those voices, external and, and, and internal? By doing what the psalmist does here. By preaching the gospel to yourself. That's what this man who is desperately depressed does as he reaches the depths of despair. He doesn't just ignore those voices of disappointment and depression, but he stops listening, and instead of listening, he starts speaking to them. See, you you can't Listen and speak at the same time. That's Marriage Counseling 101, by the way. <laughs> you can't listen and speak at the same time. There, there is a time to listen, but there is a time to speak. And one of those times is when voices are speaking unbiblical truth to you, whether those voices are external or internal. So the psalmist says to himself, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. Do you see what he's doing? He's preaching to himself. He's preaching to himself. In fact, he's rebuking himself. He's rebuking those voices that are urging him 
into depression and deeper and deeper. So he asks himself, why why are you in despair, my soul? Why is he in despair? Why has his soul become disturbed? He actually tells us, although not directly, he tells us indirectly. Do you see it in the third line there in the verse? He's in despair and his soul is disturbed because he has put his hope, however temporarily, he has put his hope in something other than God. Do you see that? Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? The answer, because I've put my hope in something. I've put my hope in a place where it just doesn't belong. So what do I have to do to fix this? How do I get myself, how do I get my mind thinking clearly again? How do I shake this feeling of helplessness and despair? Hope in God. Hope in God. This is a daily, sometimes it's even an hourly exercise for us, family. But it's something that every one of us needs to know how to do. You must learn to counter and override those voices, whether it's voices that are external or voices that are internal, by preaching the gospel to yourself. This is your greatest need every day when you're not depressed. When you are depressed, how much more is it your greatest need? Your greatest need in life is to hope in God. Especially when those voices are contradicting what God's Word says. So what does it mean to to hope in God? That word hope can throw us off because in our language, in English, we've got several definitions for hope. It's kind of synonymous with wish. You know, uh, it, you know I might end an email saying, uh, I, I hope you get this, uh, this email. Or I, I might say, I, I hope that all is well with you. you know? No, when we see the word hope in Scriptures, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean, well, we wish for something. No, it refers to our guarantee of the fulfillment of God's promises. That's biblical hope. It is referring to the guarantee of the fulfillment of what God has promised in His Word. And our confidence, indeed our faith, in those promises. See, what the psalmists are not doing is what most people do. They're not yielding themselves or or, or listening to what they feel. Now, if you struggle with depression, you have got to learn to do this. You have got to learn to refuse to yield yourself to what you are feeling, to stop listening to what you are feeling. They're refusing to surrender their emotions. What the man here is doing is putting his feelings and putting his emotions on a tight leash and reeling them in, taking control of his emotions. The fact that he does this three times throughout this psalm tells us a few things. First of all, it tells us that that's the point of this psalm. It tells us that the cure for depression, for despair, or for disappointment with the things of this world is to place our hope more fully upon God and in His promises and to take our eyes off of ourselves and to believe God and to worship God. 
A second thing that the threefold repetition of this council tells us is that it's not necessarily always as simple as just preaching to yourself once. If only you could just do it once, and it would fix everything, right? You must keep preaching to yourself over and over when those voices are echoing in your mind until your hope is entirely in God again. Who He is, what He's promised His people in His Word. And this is a struggle. It's a struggle. But it's a struggle worth fighting for. It's a struggle worth engaging in. This is a hill that's worth dying on if necessary. I can't even begin to tell you guys how many times I've done this, especially over the last two years. I know, I know from my own experience how fierce this battle for our minds is. And there are days, a lot of them, there are days when I've felt like I can't even get out of bed to fight the battle another day against the headlines, against the voices on social media, the voices on the news, and so on and so forth. I can't tell you how many times I've said to myself, Toby, why are you looking for comfort in this world? Because that's really what it comes down to, is I'm uncomfortable with the way things are. But why am I looking for comfort in this world? Put your hope, Toby, put all of your hope in God. In God alone. Remember where your hope belongs and put it there. Remember to whom you belong and hope in Him. Find contentment in Him. And know that He's sovereign over everything, including all the things going on in the world today. See, our our constant battle, our constant inclination, especially when we're depressed, is to put our hope in something else. And anything other than God is something lesser. Amen? If we're putting our hope in something other than God, we're putting our hope in lesser things. And I'm not only speaking to young or immature Christians. I mean, this is an inclination. This is a tendency that giants of the faith throughout history have struggled with as well. And just as we become increasingly inclined to struggle with depression whenever we do this, so did they. Each and every one of us has a battle to fight against our own flesh. And it can be difficult. There will be days when you would just rather not. You know how that feels? Days when you'd rather not resist or fight against the inclinations of your flesh. When you feel like you don't have the energy and you don't have the the motivation to keep doing it. Well, in a sense... Good, because you shouldn't have been relying on your own strength to begin with. Not for this battle. It is God whose grace and strength are sufficient in our weakness. We should have been maintaining our hope in Him all along. We should have been relying on Him to be our strength all along. But the flesh is so weak. The flesh is weak and unsteady. It's so easy to put our hope in lesser things. Things that we can see. Things that we can feel. Maybe something that other people have. Maybe something we used to have but lost. 
It's easier to put our hope in a drink or in a pill or in a person. And these are the things that our flesh wants to put our hope in. But the cure for depression is not to surrender or to yield to the desires and the inclinations and the tendencies of the flesh. It's to fight them. It's to go to war with them. It's not to listen to the voices that are echoing in your mind. It's to silence them. How? By preaching the Gospel to yourself. Putting your hope entirely in God. Not in comfort. Not in wealth. Not in anything of this world. In God alone. See, the truth is that nobody talks to you more than you do. Nobody talks to you more than you do, and so nobody is as influential over what you think and what you feel as you are. The question is then, what are you saying to yourself? Are you parroting the voices that cause you to doubt or despair? Or are you preaching the Gospel to yourself daily? Fight the tendency. Go to war with the natural inclination we all have to live and to think and to feel as if God is absent. As if God doesn't care. Because He does care. And as long as He cares, and as long as He hasn't abandoned us and He's promised that He hasn't, I will not forsake you even until the end. That's a promise that we can take to the bank. The funds are sufficient. That promise is good. As long as those things are true. Oh my soul, why would you despair? Why? Look to Him. Look to God. Believe Him. Worship Him. Preach the Gospel to your heart and do it daily. And I say daily because the struggle isn't usually over the first time you preach to yourself. Look at how the psalm progresses in the next section. Let's look at verses 6-11. to Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my, adversar- my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Now what becomes clear here is that the man who's being pictured in this psalm is still feeling like he's far away from God. Now maybe he's been taken captive physically, I think that's probably the case, but he has definitely been taken captive spiritually in the sense that his thoughts have taken him captive. You guys remember that we're supposed to be the ones taking our thoughts captive, right? But his thoughts have taken him captive spiritually in the sense that he's feeling distant 
from God. And what he feels and what he thinks have drawn him to trust once again in lesser things. But what we see here is that even though this, this man or this person in this psalm has done all of the right things, he's identified what the problem is. He, he's hit the solution squarely on the head. Nevertheless, he still has a sense of depression sinking down within him. Now, based on the geography that's named in this section, it seems pretty clear that this man is not only far away from home physically, but it's clear that he's feeling spiritually far away from God still. Even after nailing the solution, it's looking more and more like he's an exile now living in the land north of Israel. And he's probably there against his will. And so he recalls the times of old again and how he would worship the Lord back home in the temple in Jerusalem. The phrase in verse 7, deep calls to deep. It's a picture of wave after wave of turmoil sweeping over him one after another. The image of a waterfall is it's an image of a violent water source. It seems that what he's starting to wonder is if God is angry at him, if he is under God's wrath. Now, it's natural, especially when you're depressed, to feel like that, by the way, especially when you're depressed. But just because it's natural to feel that way doesn't mean that we should allow ourselves to feel that way. Because it doesn't mean that it's true, and it doesn't mean that we should just entertain or accommodate those types of thoughts in our minds. But he's being honest, and that's just where he is right now. That's what he's feeling. All of your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. He feels like he's a sailor who's been through a a violent storm, and all he can do is cling to a, a piece of driftwood and hope that an ocean current brings him to shore soon. That's undoubtedly similar to how it felt to be living in exile. But notice this. If you look at this section and study this section clearly, you'll notice that he's actually starting to think more rationally. See, God didn't make us just to be emotional beings. He also made us to be rational beings. And so he's starting to come around to thinking soundly and biblically about his trials. He's realizing that ultimately God has ordained his trials. Now, whether he realizes it in, in this moment as, as, uh, as he's wallowing in depression or not, those trials, although they are difficult and painful, were ultimately directed at him by God for his own good and for God's glory. God either sent this trial or he allowed this trial to come. God is sovereign. What that means for somebody who's struggling with depression is God allowed it. God allowed you to struggle with depression. And it was either somehow for your good, and I understand it's beyond our ability to completely understand how this works for our good. But has God not promised it? And are we going to believe His promises That's the question that we have to come back to. What if God ordained that you would have depression so that you would lean more fully on Him? 
What a blessing that would be. Now, we might not think it's a blessing now, but I guarantee you that the day is coming when we will see that it is. And so he starts to come around more fully. The psalmist comes around more fully in verse 8. He says, The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime. Loving kindness. There's that word. We've seen this, I don't know how many times in the Psalms. It's it's a theme that has kind of been thread through all the Psalms, so many of the Psalms. It's the Hebrew word hesed, which is God's covenantal love toward His people. Make no mistake, it is a love that does discipline. It's not a love that says, I'm just going to feed you cotton candy and let you be happy for the rest of your life. It's a love that truly loves. And true love, biblical love, seeks the best of the object of their love. So, it's a love that disciplines. But it's also a love that never condemns. It's a love that is faithful even in times when we aren't. The love of God will never fail those who belong to Him. That's His hesed. Even when the sons of Korah didn't feel the presence of God, God's hesed, His loving kindness, His covenant love for His people was always with them. Listen, family, if you have believed in Christ, if you have believed in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, God has a covenant with you too, doesn't He? We call it the New Covenant. It's the New Covenant which is established by the blood of Christ shed for His people. If you have believed in Christ, the covenant love of God, the hesed of God, is yours. Yours to cling to. Yours to find your greatest comfort in. This was this man's comfort for the night. This was his assurance that God would not fail him. That God would not just abandon him. But what we see is that it actually leads to more questions. Like, well, if God hasn't abandoned me, then why am I feeling so far away from Him? Is it because He's forgotten me? And that's exactly what he asks in verse 9. On the surface, that very well may have been what it looked like. Just on the surface. That's what his oppressors were saying. That's what they're mocking him with. They mocked him with it back in verse 3. And here in verse 10, they're still doing it. So it's something that they're saying over and over again. It appears that his affliction was indeed severe. Not only are they taunting him, but they appear to be physically beating and assailing him as they mock his God. But he comes back to the question, what am I hoping in? What would he find his greatest joy in? A pain-free life? Would that be his greatest possible joy? His greatest possible hope? His greatest possible comfort? No. He realizes that a life that's free from pain is far, far inferior to hoping and trusting in God. And so he preaches once again to his own heart, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. 
The fact that this self-examination starts with the question, why, is actually a reflection of the futility of living in accordance to what he is thinking, or what he is feeling, or what he is hoping in, in the moment. The answer to these questions is, once again, to put his hope in God, all of his hope in God, to trust God, and to believe the promises that God has made. God has never promised an easy life, but He has promised that He's with us until the end. Has God ever promised that we'll never be depressed or upset about our trials and afflictions? No. Not even a hint of that in His Word. So what has God promised that you can count on? A lot of things, right? I mean, the list is pretty long. They have books that are just filled with God's promises. Get one of those. But how about His promise that nothing, absolutely no single thing in existence will ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's another promise you can take to the bank. The funds are there. It's good. Now maybe your question is, okay, I I want to hope in God, but I'm not sure how to preach to myself. How do I preach to myself? Well, just before we started our, our, our study of God's Word today, we sang a hymn called, Lord, from sorrows deep I call. Can you sing that? Can you remember the words to that? It's pretty easy. Yeah, you can. Can you, can you put a sermon on, your, your, on YouTube or whatever? Yeah, you can do that. Can you memorize Scripture? Yeah, absolutely. All, all these things are wonderful ways to preach to ourselves. Listen, don't forget that this psalm was written as a song to be sung. Music and singing, listening to worship music, listening to, to somebody else sing and joining along with them, those are great ways to reach to the depths of our hearts. Because singing has a way of moving us emotionally, doesn't it? So find a hymn to sing. Find a sermon to listen to. Find a Scripture to recite. However you do it, get in the habit of preaching the Gospel to yourself and reminding yourself daily to put your hope in God and nothing lesser. Well, the battle continues for this man in the psalm, however. Uh, We'll wrap it up by looking at verses 1-5 to of Psalm 43. This continues. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him the help of my countenance and my God. Now, maybe at this point, 
you're thinking, okay, he keeps having to do this. Is, is this actually working? Uh, does this counsel of preaching to ourselves and reminding ourselves to, to hope in God and to believe in God and to worship God, does this actually work? Uh, I mean, the psalmist seems to be going through all the same feelings and emotions still that he was at the beginning. And in one sense, I suppose that's true, although I would say that it's in a much lesser sense. He's still asking the hard questions, though. He's still wondering if he's been forsaken. But let's look at the progress that he's made. In the first section, verses 1-5, to he was weeping and he was crying continually as he was remembering the days of old when he worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. He was wondering in verse 1 if God was there, if God was present with him. In the second section, verses 6-11, to he was still remembering those days. But then he started using the memory of those times to remember God's covenant faithfulness, his has said, the covenant love that God has for his people, the covenant love that never fails. Is that progress from the first section? It is. Yes, absolutely. In light of who God is, the man says back in verse 9 that God is his rock. Amen. Yes, He is. God is our rock. He's our rock and refuge when waves of despair and depression are lapping over us wave after wave. Even in those times, because He's our rock, we remain safe and secure in Him. And then in the third section, Psalm 43, verses 1-5, to He's praying to God to vindicate Him, knowing that God is His strength. He's praying with confident assurance that God hears his prayers and is able, not only able to hear him, but able to act, able to guide him back to the place of worship and to the place where he knew the joy of salvation. He prays that God's truth and light will lead him to God's holy hill and to God's dwelling places. This third section... It's technically a lament because there are some hard questions and he's obviously struggling. But compared to that first section, this is barely a lament. So does this work? Absolutely it works. Yes, it does. Does God care about my depression? About your depression? Yes, He does. Has He given us a solution? Has He given us something to do? A cure for our depression? Yes, Yes, He has, but it's not a pill. It's not to just escape reality. It's not to go out and go on a spending spree knowing that the excitement of spending lots of money can give us a temporary lift until our credit card bills come, and that's not very uplifting at all. No, these things might lift our moods, but only temporarily. In fact, in the long run, they'll just disappoint us because they don't offer us a lasting solution. Now, the long-term cure, the biblical cure for depression, despair, or disappointment with the things of this world is to hope in God, to place our hope in Him more fully, to think upon His promises and to believe Him, not just to believe in God, but to actually believe God to take our eyes off of ourselves, to take our eyes and our attention off of our woes, and to put our attention and our hope in God. If you find yourself depressed, the first and the immediate response is always the same. Make sure you're not putting your hope in something lesser than God. 
Hope in Him. Believe in Him. Talk to Him. And preach His glorious Gospel to your soul. Now some people say, well, that just seems naive and simplistic. But it's the prescription that God Himself has written. And guess what? God knows us better than we know ourselves. Listen, the Heidelberg Catechism starts with an important question that deals with this. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? Let me underline the word only. What is your only comfort? It doesn't say, what's your greatest comfort? It says, what's your only comfort in life and in death? It's this. It starts with this. This is the short answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior. Jesus Christ. Do not trust in things like comfort or ease because those things come and go. Those things are so fragile. They're like a bubble that is so beautiful and then it's gone. But God isn't like that. God is steadfast and faithful. Remember that the Lord Jesus Himself was described as a man of many sorrows. We can expect to have our share of sorrows in this world as well. But for the Christian who has been brought near to God and reconciled to Him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there are always, there are always more reasons to rejoice than there are to despair. The pains of this life are temporary, but eternity in the presence of God Ultimately, someday we will see that it was worth every sacrifice. It was worth fighting to put all of our hope in Him. Remember that. And live by that. God has promised it. And His promises are always sure. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for being a God who knows us better than we know ourselves. Thank you for the assurance that you care, if nothing else, as evidenced by the fact that you've given us this psalm to model for us how to handle our feelings when our feelings contradict what your word says. Teach us, O Lord, teach us the stupidity and the futility of putting our hope in lesser things than you. Oh God, this is our inclination. This is our battle every day. But you've given us Christ, and you have given us your Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to strengthen us, and to lead us back to Christ. And so we pray, O Lord that You would teach us by whatever means necessary because it is the greatest good. We pray that You would teach us to put our hope entirely in You and not in the things of this world. Oh Father, as we consider the sweeping depression in our nation, we see that You have given us the answer. So teach us, O Lord, to live what Your Word has modeled for us.
that the world may see an imperishable hope within us. We pray these things for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.